And we are absolutely delighted to have her here today. Please, let's give her a warm round of applause. Oh, yeah, of course, all of that and more. <laughs> um, okay, well, I am really, really happy to be here. I am so... Um, appreciative that people from different different strands of my political life, personal life, and some that I don't know, which is all really wonderful, are here. And um, so I, I'm really glad uh, to be doing this, glad to be in L.A. The book actually starts out in L.A., where I have some um, tangled history. Um, so... Uh, I guess format. I, I'm going to start by giving a little bit of overview of um, of why I wrote the book, how it came to be, uh, what ha the arc of the book is, just to give you a context. And um, <clears throat> I'll read a couple of sections, short, not to um, not to get my voice too tired or you all too um, just into the listening mode, because really what I find is the most interesting part of any book reading is the question and answers and the discussion. And so even if you haven't read the book, which probably most of you haven't, um, you know, you will have enough of a sense of it from the introduction and uh, from the blurbs, etc., to be able to ask me probing interesting questions and we can all talk about them. So, um, and then, of course, I hope that you will um, buy books because as any um, any author knows, uh, you, it's good to write a book and it's good to sell the books and it's really good to support independent bookstores like Skylight Books in doing, in staying alive and surviving and in doing all these amazing programs. So um, I really urge you, if for some reason you can't stay till the end, yay. Uh, just And I know everyone is on a tight budget, but, um, you know, this is one time when, you know, share, the sharing economy <laughs> is not always the best. But you can share, but just um, also buy. So <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay, so um, as many of you may know, and some of you may not, I before I wrote this book, I wrote uh, a memoir. And that is conveniently uh, up here. It's called Arm the Spirit, A Woman's Journey Underground and Back. And that um, kind of told the story of my political history, our political history. I was part of an organization, a collective, a movement, and that's what the book, that memoir was about, and my own personal experience of that, being a mother underground, or having children underground, etc. So, um, but after the book, after I, or even while I was finishing the memoir, I began to realize that there were a lot of stories that I hadn't been able to include for different reasons. I mean, after all, that memoir was th pushing 350 pages. It was time to stop the stories already. But also, for um, 
there were a lot of things I couldn't tell because of the circumstances and not wanting to violate confidentiality or privacy, uh, history that I didn't really feel in a position even many years later that I could just expose and the people involved in it. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to write something that was fictional. The other, another very important reason was that I really wanted to try and explore the points of view of, of other people, not my, just my point of view on all my political history and activity, because I think, you know, that is one of the things that many of us um, grapple with as people who are activists is getting stuck in your own one-sided perspective and not being able to kind of reach out and becoming closed and sectarian and all those things. So it was really, um, I had, my path had crossed many other people's um, during the time I was underground and also then when I came back um, after being underground for uh, 13 years. Um, and I really, I just wanted to imagine what it was like from the point of view of other people who had met me <laughs> and what they how they had seen it. And of course this is me, my imagination, imagining them, so it's not um, totally, it's not their story, but it was, it was something I really wanted to do in order to be able to um, express other people's uh, approaches and also to try and um, show how political decisions from one person have a ripple effect on other people that you can't predict and you know sometimes that's um, hopefully good and sometimes it isn't um, so that was one of the other motivating factors to writing a novel and then the other was just that I wanted to write I wanted you know lots of people like to do that creative expression thing and I have you know I didn't come to this just totally cold I have written other fiction in the past I started out a long time ago like many people write trying to write something in high school lost that piece of me for many years but then um, ironically re um, found it while I was underground because I did a lot of um, creative writing and took classes and that was one of my outlets and one of the ways in which I was able to figure out how to talk about things in, in an underground situation that um, I couldn't really talk about um, except through fiction. So um, those were some of the pieces that uh, led me to writing this book. And then, you know, it seems like happily, I mean, I started it a number of years ago, probably about four, four and a half years ago. And happily, I think the moment, the political moment now is really a great one for um, experimentation, for all sorts of people seem to be exploring fiction, the, the activist fiction that weren't um, just a number of years ago. And, um, and there is so much energy and, um, you know, conversation about, um, you know, radical alternatives, radical politics, rethinking things that haven't been discussed for years, I find, in the past, um, just the past year. So that has been really um, great to see, and I think it means that it has made uh, the people receptive to this novel in a way that 
might not have been quite the same a few years ago. So, having said that, I'll just tell you a little bit about the book itself or how it develops before I read a couple of passages. Um, so the book starts in the 1980s when the um, when Luba Gold goes underground um, in support of the Puerto Rican independence movement, which coincidentally was the time I went underground in the support of the Puerto Rican independence movement. This is not, it, it, you know, it, it, is, it is fiction and the people are really not the same as any one person, but it's, I'm not trying to veil the 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 coincidences so that that is what what um what what starts the book and Luba um, meets somebody um, in a hospital where she's working she meets a nurse who is um, sort of a quirky person a loner and um, at one point she discovers she's, um, that the, the the nurse is um, her father is Puerto Rican. And this kind of um, really surprises Luba. The woman doesn't look Puerto Rican. There are different factors. And also just kind of sets the stage for their very contradictory, conflicted, but ultimately very um, significant relationship. And um, the woman then, Belinda, ends up being confronted um, when, when the FBI come to her door after Luba disappears to ask her w where Luba is. And she has to make a decision about what, um, whether to talk to them or not. So one of the things I'm really trying to work on in the book or th throughout it is exploring how people make political decisions, especially ones that involve risk, how people make decisions to do things that are, well, way outside of their comfort zone, especially if they ha don't have sort of a, an activist orientation to begin with. Um, and that led me, that question, that question led me to then write about Another, per, another character in the book, Joan, who actually ends up deciding to become an informer on the movement for a short period of time. And um, I, I, I wanted to write that. I mean, actually, Joan is not someone. A lot of the people in the book are based upon people I knew in one way or another, or and then I took, got taken off from there. But Joan isn't any one person. Um, I mean, I have unfortunately known a number of informers and agents in the movement, um, but no one that was just like Joan. However, as as our movements have been continually, repeatedly infiltrated in various ways and um, damaged greatly by infiltration, I felt like writing about that was important to me, it was important to try and just imagine why somebody would take that step um, and try and balance it out between understanding and without condoning the, the actions she took. Um, so, and, and that's a lot of the struggle of that, that piece goes throughout the book. Um, 
So the rest of the book actually takes place once Luba, those two play, pieces were from the past um, or long ago past in terms of uh, Luba's clandestine um, life. But um, then the rest of the book takes place um, starting in the 1990s when Luba comes back to uh, public life and is much more um, an exploration of the ways in which um, the prison industrial complex has kind of taken over the country in the in, in the years, those years in between the beginning 80s and the middle 90s and the ways in which everybody is trying to begin to deal or is touched, is impacted in one way or another by prisons in our society. Um, and that really came out of, you know, my work, my life. When I came back from being underground, um, in many ways, my life, I felt like, was moving from one prison to another. I mean, I was visiting my partner, Claude, who was in prison um, regularly. I was visiting people, women who were in prison uh, as part of the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. And I was visiting a number of political prisoners whom I had known and done political work with before um, they went to prison. So um, that whole subject matter and the way in which prisons were playing out um, really in plain sight but invisibly was something very important to me to be able to try and explore how they were actually impacting people on a variety of levels. So I think I'm going to now turn to my, the first little section I will read, which is um, which is fast forwarded. It's uh, dated. It takes place in 2007. It's told from the point of view of another nurse um, who is working in San Francisco in a hospital, and who um, one day. Um, is confronted or bumps into literally a prisoner. So um, this this chapter is called Camouflage, and it's told from Maggie's point of view, and it starts like this. If he hadn't stumbled carelessly against me as I was rushing to cross the street, I might never have noticed him. I was late for my shift on the ortho ward and already irritated that Gordon had been too busy skateboarding to let me know he wouldn't be home after school. So when I felt the man's body weight slump onto mine, I almost shoved him rudely away before I saw his day-glow orange uniform and the chain shackling his feet. If I had pushed him, he would have crumbled downward helpless on the pavement below. Sorry, miss, uh, Clay here seems to have lost his balance. The man in the crisply ironed olive green uniform and buff black shoes was tugging on Clay in a clumsy, misplaced effort to get him upright on his feet. Clay was staggering, trying not to stabilize himself, but I could tell immediately from his labored breathing and the sweat rolling down the dark wrinkles of his face that the stumble was caused by more than his chains. I think he needs to sit down, not stand up, I said, and began to help Clay settle himself on the curb of the sidewalk. 
When the guards seemed to hesitate about following the instructions of a small, non-uniformed woman regarding his prisoner, I added in my most commanding voice, I'm a nurse, and flashed my ID badge at him. This man may be having a heart attack. We need to call the ER across the street to come get him. That seemed to shake Mr. Olive Green up a little. I wasn't sure about the heart attack, but I imagined that this burly guard wouldn't want to explain a death on his watch. Okay, I guess. Uh, he has an appointment with some other department. He fumbled for a paper in his pocket. Maybe my partner has a paper. He went to get some food at the cafeteria, which is why I'm here by myself. Um, we usually escort the inmates in teams, you know. He was explaining this to me as if I were the supervisor he might have to justify things to back at the jail. Neurology. Clay's breathing had calmed down enough for him to talk. His voice was gravelly but surprisingly deliberate. I have an appointment with the neurology specialist because I've been having trouble with my balance lately. Abruptly, I realized that I hadn't talked directly to the man himself. He was an orange-suited inmate, and I had chosen to communicate with the commander in Olive Green instead. I appreciated that Clay wanted to take authority over his own condition. Thank you. Um, can, you can you tell me what has been happening lately? I didn't want to do an intake interview, but now that I had heard his voice, I needed to know what he had to say. Despite his distress, Clay quickly described his history of severe headaches, visual impairment, nausea, and increasingly frequent falls that had been ignored for more than two years. He left the accusation of malpractice unstated. I was drawing my own conclusions when the ER team arrived. Thank you, Miss Rafferty, Maggie Rafferty. Only when Clay grabbed my hand to say goodbye could I feel the clawing panic beneath his sharp clinical observations. I'll check on you later, Clay, I told him as the guard was pulling him away. I work in orthopedics, but I'll try and come down and see how you're doing later on. By now, I was very late for work, and I knew that Belinda, the nurse I was supposed to relieve, would be drumming her fingers in exasperation, even while she continued to cover me. I started to cross the street again. Watch where you're going, I spat furiously at a skateboarder who nearly collided with me as he sailed recklessly through the crosswalk, his camouflage pants and punk orange hair billowing in the wind. You don't give a shit about anyone but yourself, I yelled at his receding silhouette, trying vainly to slow his arrogance down. He wasn't only risking his own skin. There were those who weren't privileged enough to move about freely as he could. Those tied down by canes, walkers, wheelchairs, and chains. But his eyes were riveted on the next thrilling slope ahead, and his thrusting army booted foot had already propelled him way past earshot. As I made my way through the crowded hospital hallway, filled with nurses who were getting off their day shifts, I tried to shake the image of Clay's chained feet. In orthopedics, I had come to appreciate the importance of feet as the bedrock foundation for the rest of the body. 
Walking through the hospital corridors, I often found myself speculating on the size, the shape, and the muscle tone of the vast array of feet that stood beneath the fancy Nine West heels, the chic Doc Martin boots, the athletic Nikes, and the utilitarian Keens. A cool shoe might well conceal a gnarled and desperate foot, but there was no way to disguise the chains that entangled laceless, sneakered feet. So that's the beginning of that chapter, and it goes forward with a lot of things that have to do with um, Maggie's kind of interactions with different prisoners, including a political prisoner that she ends up taking care of in, in the hospital and her relationship with him and where that goes. Um, so as you can see, I wrote that chapter very much, um, well, you, you probably can't see, I, I do, I, I have worked in a hospital, I am not a nurse, but I do do a lot of work in hospitals, and during that period of time was, and, and through the present, but it was in that era that I really began noticing it, where more and more every day, um, there were more people just being paraded through the hospital corridors in um, in chains in their day glow orange uniforms, and it was really and most people were like looking through them like it was just an ordinary part of their existence. I mean, or they, I don't even know how it registered to everyone. I'm sure people registered in different ways, but it wasn't something that people were able to grapple with or cope with, and I, I would just feel like I needed to scream, but of course that, you know, so it came out in this story, that part of it anyway. So the next piece I want to read is... Um, goes fast forward a few years to 2010 um, and it's written from the point of view of a, a young woman who is the daughter of one of Luba's um, cohort of, um, of political activists from, uh, from the 70s. So um, this daughter is um, really wanting to investigate uh, radical politics. She feels like her her mother has shut that down because she had she was burnt out, had a bad experience with um, with the organization that she was part of, um, and had put that all beside aside and distanced it. And then the daughter really feels like the mother is keeping things from her and she wants to really understand what that history was about. And so she goes to um, visit a political prisoner who, um, who she's read about in some of her mother's books but also she's doing, um, uh, she's at San Francisco State and she goes to the library and she researches and so she decides to go and visit this woman, Cassandra, in, um, a, in a prison that's nearby um, San Francisco. And this is um, told from her point of view and it's the first visit that she's going to have in the prison. It's called Release, and uh, um, the woman, woman's name telling the story is Annis. 
Your limp was the first thing I noticed about you, Cassandra, as you walked into the visiting room. You limped deliberately toward me, angling your body ever so carefully through the narrow spaces between the tables, overloaded with chips, candy bars, and soda. I guess I had expected you, a white woman who had once escaped from prison, to be one of those take-charge striders, like the towering Drucker woman on the poster on my mother's bedroom wall, tramping fearlessly across the city, hair flowing, arms and legs swinging wide, overshadowing the skyscrapers in the background, stomping through everything in her way. But you stepped cautiously, as if one false move could cause a mass chain reaction spill, a dangerous cascade of junk food overturning one table and then the next until all the grease and sugar landed smack, splattering at the feet of the two imperial guards sitting in command at the front of the room. When you finally got to where I was sitting in the way back, as far away from them as I could get, you said my name, Annis, and you got it right the first time, unlike most people who make it rhyme with peace or release. Then you extended your hand in an assured, graceful motion that made me think that you probably had once walked with that same elegance. You look like your pictures, I said, even though I was thinking how faded you seemed compared to the glamorous woman in the books and magazines I had unearthed at the San Francisco State Library. Even in the posed pictures taken in prison, you had looked fashionable. Your hair was cropped close and sharp around your high cheekbones, your hoop earrings dangled beneath your sunglasses, and your shirt and jeans fit just right. You could have been out on the street rather than posing behind bars. But here, in person, you looked like an inmate, dressed like every other woman in the room, with a loose tan shirt hanging shapeless over beige pants. Your hair hung listless down the sides of your head, hiding its striking shape. I wondered whether you were able to get conditioner in prison and how often you could take a shower or if you could buy the kind of lotion that could heal the cobweb cracks under your eyes. Not the kind of questions I had come here to ask you, but the pad with the ones that I had written down to start this interview were locked in a steel case in the visitor processing room, along with my forbidden pen. Did you have any trouble getting through the processing, you asked politely, after we had formally introduced ourselves? Not really, I lied, not wanting to tell you that I had tried to argue with the guard when he said I couldn't bring a pad or a pen into the prison. What could be dangerous about a notepad? He snapped back that I could either obey the rules or forfeit the visit. So I gave up and put the band, pad, and pen in the locker like I was told. My friend Shanika used to boast about how she could smuggle in joints, food, almost anything when she went to visit her boyfriend in juvie. Now my clueless self couldn't even get a lame-ass pen into this prison. You're learning when to give up, my mother had said to me recently, meaning it as a compliment. I almost snapped at her that I was just getting better at camouflage, following in her footsteps. 
Instead, I walked away, proving her point, perhaps. Honey, don't let them upset you. You'll get used to all their crazy rules, an older black woman in back of me in the visitor line had advised after my run-in with the guard. She was holding a beautiful chubby toddler who was sleeping peacefully despite the artificial lights glaring down on him and the suffocating airlessness of the space. They even enforced the dress code for babies, she confided. Last Easter, she had waited 45 minutes to be processed because there was only one guard on duty that day, even though it was one of the busiest visiting days of the year. When she finally got to the desk, the officer told her that her grandbaby was dressed wrong. At first, she didn't understand what he was saying, even though he kept repeating the words stupidly. Beige, he's wearing beige. I had just gotten Jamani this cute jumpsuit on sale and never thought about it being an illegal color, as if this tiny boy baby could be mistaken for a grown woman in a uniform. I was so angry, I thought I would bust, but then I wouldn't have gotten to see my daughter, and she would have been so upset not to see her child on Easter. So I went to Target and bought him something else to wear. If I had gone all the way back home to find him some other clothes, it would have been too late, and he, we would have missed the visit. Coretta gave me another piece of advice when we finally got to the visiting room. She probably could tell that I felt like the air was being sucked out of my lungs after each set of electronic doors thudded shut behind us. Try and get a p table at the back of the room. More peaceful that way. Besides, you don't want the guards getting into your business if you can help it. So that's, um, that goes on, and um, it becomes uh, a very, um, very emotional story um, involving the relationship between Annis and Cassandra and uh, the different, and we get to know Cassandra a lot through that through this also and um, and this was definitely a way of um, my paying tribute to um, some of the people that I have visited in particularly in particular uh, one person Marilyn Buck who uh, many people will recognize from from the descriptions in the story um, and and I'm here again I'm not trying to veil it um, in, a, in a way that is not real, although the character Cassandra is an amalgam. It isn't exactly like Ma Marilyn, but it definitely takes a lot from the arc of her life and her story. And so um, that was something I actually began working on the book, or I had talked to Marilyn about the book, and or my idea for writing it, before she died in, in um, 2010. And then after she died, um, I wasn't even really planning to include her, and then at some point, I had to write about her. I mean, it was just part of what I had to do with this novel. So, um, so I think I'm going to leave it there for now. Um, I think that's given you enough of <laughs> uh, just a sense of where what the book is like or what I was trying to do. Of course, there are many other parts, and always in these readings, I, you have to choose something that is at least accessible. If you get into the <laughs> the total middle of the story, um, you won't know what's going on. So um, I hope that's helped. And um, 
Now I would like to do the fun part, which is open it up for questions. And I hope someone will jump in quickly. Crunchy! So I'm happy to say that I did purchase it, and I'm about this far. So part of me was like, oh, I have to read it before I come. <laughs> but it was so much more fun hearing you read it. Oh, really? <laughs> um, so, so far, so incredible. Um, I love just how, can I say yep. a comment? And then... Of course, yeah. Um, I just love how you put so much, so many critical issues. It's intergenerational. Mm -hmm. The children, you know, the mother-child dynamics. And the mothers, and maybe I'm like listening to it a little bit more intently. Um, but then also the young people that are going to court with their friends, and just how impacted all of that is. Um, I think that you know, you're so intentional about everything. Oh, and, and it really, thank you. Really comes across when you do that. Thank you so much, Kruti. <laughs> do you have a question? Oh, she's Yeah. So, um, as a current activist around the prison industrial complex, how how do you see the book, um, kind of for the for the folks that are reading it? What's the what's the action step for you? Hmm. Okay, that's good. And this question I haven't had before. No, exactly. Um, well, okay. So. I have to say that, you know, in my day-to-day um, -day activist work, and for those who don't know, I'm a um, proud member of the California Coalition for Women Prisoners, of which some other members are here tonight, which I'm very happy about. Um, and we, uh, every, we always have action steps, so that's, you know, what we need to um, come up with um, in order to try and get some traction in this crazy system. Um, the, one of the things about writing a fiction book like this is not necessarily having a specific action, not one thing. I mean, I think, you know, I would say overall what I hope, although I, you know, I would really, some, you know, especially when people read it, like feedback, I mean, I hope that it kind of presents some of the complications and contradictions of an activist life in a way that allows people or encourages people to grapple with them and expect them and not just wa want to walk away at the first sign or the second or the third sign of crap <laughs> um, and yet feel like the, the, the importance of trying to live an activist life and be inventive and um, changing it up all the time is, uh, is, is what people want to do. I mean, so it's really, I think, the action I have in mind is more a philosophical one. Um, now I do, I mean, I do have, I do <laughs> actually, and no one has um, yet commented or very much on that, but I do have an action at the very end of the book, which is sort of the culmination of a lot of things, which is, um, you know, taking the, clandestine aspect of the title into the future as um, as Annis, the character that we just read about, decides to do. 
And so, I mean, on the kind of imaginary level, I feel like I am really um, hoping that people will, you know, think outside the box more and more. I mean, in terms of what, you know, not not mimicking what, sh what happens in the book or anything, but just, you know, I think we all say it all the time, but I think thinking outside the framework that is being held to us or given us, I mean, right now, if you aren't into the elections, I don't know what planet you're on, and yet, and I will say it, because in this space I can, <laughs> you know, I mean, given, ha I mean, we're being brainwashed, all of us, into thinking the elections and that elect, you know, t that what's happening in next November is, is absolutely definitive. And um, it makes it hard for people to, not to say other people aren't, a lot of people are, but it's, and to me it's a very, it's very, it makes it harder to then expand your universe, your mental universe, and try and keep your eyes on ways that are not being um, drummed into you 24-7 um, as, you know, this is the critical issue of our time in the next year and that's what you have to do. And I welcome anyone who disagrees with me. That's, <laughs> I'm not trying to use this, um, you know, I mean I am trying to use it as a, <laughs> as, a, as a way of voicing my opinion. But I know that there are many nuances and many disagreements and there are many ways of slicing it. So anyway. Um, yes, so I my question, well, first let me, I've just purchased the book and haven't had a chance to read yeah. it. absolutely enthusiastic, both based upon the people who yeah. wrote the thank introductions you. And, and your presentations. So okay. It's going to be wonderful. Great, thank you. But, and and I'm, I'm, my question is directed more towards what you say was the beginning part of uh -huh. the book, more about the people who were under Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. And, and going to that, and I mean, I've lived a long time, and I've, had, and I've known you and Claude for yeah. thousands of years. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm much older than you, Claude. But, um, I mean, it seems, and then I, I wondered if there was any care, any, any person in your book that, that kind of uh, demonstrates this more than others, but that it seems to me that during the period of the 60s and 70s, I, 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 you know, I knew people who went underground uh, in support of people who were underground or mm -hmm. people who, who went underground because they had to uh, go underground right. or people who chose to, chose to go underground so that they could do things that they realized were, was necessary and they would have to be in that situation. But it seems to me that, it, it, you know, except for the people who went underground because they had done some act and had to do that, most of the uh, people I knew in their decisions, it was, you know, life choices, vicissitudes that were, you know, not necessarily planned, uh, but planned when you mm -hmm. to operate in a principled way and you then have to make decisions mm -hmm. about what you want to do that. Except right. That first group I've described. The yeah. A lot of the other. Right. 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 And I wonder if there is any, 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 any part of that beginning part of your book 
that talks about how the, it's the same vicissitude that people have when they go and look for an apartment in an area. Things, I'm just thinking that a lot of what went on in this mm -hmm. period was commonplace in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. And I wonder if there is... So you're trying to... It, does it ex talk about sort of the... Just the decision-making process around... A very dramatic decision, but... Um, yeah. It's often, often not dramatic. It becomes, it becomes dramatic, right. So, okay. So the answer... The short answer is yes. Um, in terms of... It, it does weave into um, the one of the stories in particular. I can, I guess... <laughs> I can lead you to that. I mean, the the story about Joan and the how she crosses paths with the person Luba who goes underground does contain a lot of some of that. Um, you know, honestly, I I mean, for my real read on that question, which I really have, it, my memoir actually goes into it a lot. Yes, and and it does because that decision making process is something that afterwards I wanted to share because both because people are you know dumbfounded why how what 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 would ever have possessed you and you you seem like a sort of reasonable person or a rational person and what made you and so I did want to address that and I do in much more um, I guess you know. Um, outline that in the memoir. In this book, it comes in, it's more, I mean, I was trying, I mean, I guess in general, I was trying to do things not in as in, an instructive way, but more to kind of have it come out in, in the context of the characters. I mean, I think one of the things that um, the... Luba talks about in the context of the book, though, is, you know, she's trying to do this, she, she wants to do this revolutionary thing, she wants to be supportive of Puerto Rican independence, um, but she also wants to have a child, so she wants to do, and, and she, for a certain period of time, it doesn't seem like it's possible, but then she kind of goes against the rules of her collective, and she ends up having the child, you know, getting pregnant, and that sort of is her own kind of uh, mini-rebellion against <laughs> what the collective decision was. I mean, which is, you know, which isn't like what my own experience exactly, but speaks to a lot of experiences in that period where people were being, um, if they were part of an organization, were being really... Um, uh, encouraged strongly to follow the discipline um, whether they agreed with every single thing or not and a lot of people I think did end up um, accepting things that they didn't weren't happy about later in life and regretted and so I was trying to you know both I mean show that there were reasons why there was were collectives and discipline, etc., but there was also um, side effects that weren't so good for certain people. I mean, in this case, in Luba's case, she decides she's going to do it anyway. But, um, so I really do, I mean, those are some of the things that I do try and explore. And, you know, it is true, um, I mean, I think some people, for some people, the part about 
the underground life is um, more um, compelling than a lot of the stuff around prisons. But to me, they were they are very interwoven. I mean, you know, I think the thing is. Um, in the era when we went underground, we had a lot of very important reasons, and some of them were did really have to do with prisons and prisoners. We just did not anticipate that in the next 20 years, the whole uh, prison complex would become so much more massive, so much more draconian. Um, and we were more narrowly focused in, in that era on political prisoners. Um, so I, I feel like there is an interweaving and I hope in the, at the end I try and bring the, all the different eras together. Definitely a challenge, but you know, I felt like I had to do it. Anyway, thank you for that question. Colby. Well, I haven't done it yet, but I'm very excited to hear it because I love our experience. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, but so I'm wondering, based on what you said before you did the passages to the, the piece about um, writing, trying to write them differently, yeah. like the informer in particular, but any of them, yeah. I'm curious about the ones that felt like the most of a stretch, like how was that writing process? Right, yes, thank you. That's a yeah, great question. Um, yeah, and the informer was definitely the biggest stretch for me. And... Um, and I really, I really, even after I wrote it, I mean, I really wanted to write it. I mean, some things, and, you know, certainly for me, I am not thinking about selling. I, 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 I thought, I have to write this whether it's totally successful or not as a character portrait. I want to try. And um, so... Um, I think the difficult thing was, I mean, I, I definitely, as I have said, I've met, I've, I've had the misfortune to be involved in situations where, I mean, most of the people I've known better were actual agents rather than who, you know, the distinction being that these are people who are paid by the, uh, you know, paid professional employees of the FBI or some other agency of the, of the government. Um, whereas informers are a more um, something that I feel like... Um, people, activists, or people on the fringes of the movement can be more easily drawn into a situation where, for whatever reason, mainly usually money, in many cases, uh, which isn't the case for this character, for but for many people, for many um, uh, people, they're going to be put in prison if they don't inform, and so they then do that. And there are many much more to me, explainable reasons given the framework of this society and how it operates for why people would become informers for a certain period of time and are pushed into it. And, you know, so I think um, that is sort of what I wanted to, some of what I wanted to try and get at. I mean, that. And that's where the thing is, I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to say, oh, you know, let's all, I, I am really not, you know, let's forgive all the informers in our midst and just understand them and say, oh, this is, you know, this is part of the society, which of course it is, but I don't think, I think you have to, I mean, my personal opinion and, you know, what I 
go back and forth in in the book is, you know, you have to grapple with the issues of accountability and what it means for people to be accountable. And um, but then, you know, the other issue is how do you forgive people who have done great damage in many ways, but for whatever reason, but have actually changed. And, you know, and I wanted to explore that in the relationship to informers because, I mean, it's something we are very committed to in our work with um, women and trans prisoners in terms of people's capacity to change and forgiveness and you make mistakes and then you change your life. And so then when I, I was thinking about it, well, you know, so then how does that play out when you have people who have done other types of damage and, um, I mean, or damage directly the movement? And certainly that's true in prisons also around people who snitch people out and, and there is no one answer. I mean, you know, uh, you will get, I'm sure, uh, thousands of different answers from people inside in terms of, you know, definitely snitches are people <laughs> not liked in, and for good reason. And, uh, you know, again, I'm not trying to in any way, you know, condone or make it a simple thing, but in the case of this character, and I didn't really know when I started writing about her where, <laughs> where I was going to end up. Um, and I, you know, I've looked back at it. Oh, I should really have done it a little different, but you know, it's not no. Um, but I ended up trying to both. I mean, I tr tried to straddle this um, thing of making her, you know, uh, showing that she had done real damage to people and that it wasn't cool, and yet she had she had moved on and felt terrible and therefore and well therefore at least you know she was a different person to some extent at by the end of the book so um she's the, the she was definitely the hardest um most of the other characters i had you know some um catalyst person or more than one person usually a couple of people who i felt you know i knew well and i could kind of um uh, try and re really understand the first woman the um the nurse who is the I, uh, the luba crosses paths with. I mean, she, she was the person that started the whole concept of the book because um, she was somebody that I met when I was underground, at least the, the beginning person who it was. Um, and, you know, and I always, and I became very close to her and yet then had to leave in a very um, abrupt and uh, fashion that never did I really understand how things had impacted her once um, we um, disappeared from that part of LA. So um, I really wanted to try and understand and explore what it might have meant for her. Now it did, it's not exactly, it isn't the same person I exactly and it became someone else through the course of writing it um, and that was part of the fun of doing it that I think you know um, the part the nice thing about fiction is really that you can let your uh, mind go and you can try and imagine things I mean if you're I mean this is sort of a realistic imagination but I know I can really understand people who really go way far <laughs> to the other zones of the universe 
course because it really gives you an, a latitude that um, you know certainly uh, political writing for the most part or um, you know even my even the memoir didn't give me so thank you Mary yeah, sorry, can you talk a little bit more about the um, independence movement, the Puerto Rican independence movement, what happened to those folks? And what's yeah, okay, that's, yeah, and really, uh, so I, I said this is a conversation, and then I tend to be the dominant person in these um, settings. I, I really invite anyone who wants to add or, you know, Interject. So I will say some things. Um, certainly, I know Claude could say more. I and probably other people in this room could. Uh, M Michael and other people who know about the independence movement. So, um, so um, you know, in reality, you know, I did go underground myself personally around in support of Puerto Rican independence and also um, black liberation movement. I mean, I just want to make that clear. It wasn't just one movement that we were involved in. And in, in this book, it's more narrowly defined just to make it a little more um, easy to talk about. Um, so, and we, the many of the Puerto Rican um, political prisoners of that era have um, have been released over the course of the last um, 30, 40 years. There is one um, person there um, in particular that we that there's a lot of work still going on around who is Oscar Lopez Rivera um, who is has been in prison since uh, 1983. And he is um, one of the longest held political prisoners, not the longest held, but, um, and he, when his comrades got a commutation of their sentence in 1999 by um, Bill Clinton, um, he chose, or he decided he did not want to be part of that commutation because it didn't include everybody, which he didn't think um, was just, even though he didn't, um, disagree with the decision of the others to get out. So, but now it's been um, 17 years since the other people have um, were um, their sentences were commuted, and essentially he's being punished for that principled stand. So now there, even though there's no, re I mean, there's no difference between his case and the people who were commuted. I mean, you know, in terms of the. Uh, the fact that they were struggle, struggling for independence, they they were definitely uh, political freedom fighters. They um, and and at the point where the others had their sentences commuted, and then other people have just termed out, maxed out of their sentences, there was a recognition that it was important politically. For the, for the United States to do something to make amends for the incredible colonial situation that continues to this day. And that was, you know, that was sort of one way of appeasing people was letting, because there were hundreds of thousands of people in the street in Puerto Rico demanding the uh, release of the prisoners. So um, they, uh, that was the background to why they were actually received the commutation. Now there are hundreds of thousands of people demanding the release of Oscar and people from all over the world internationally demanding his release but um, 
so far it hasn't happened. Um, the movement, you know, in Puerto Rico, I think there's ongoing very um, strong movement in various areas. I mean, I think some of you may um, be aware that um, Puerto Rico is now on the verge of um, bankruptcy because of its uh, vast <coughs> debt, a situation that's similar to Greece, um, but um, in you know the case of Puerto Rico, it's a direct result of their colonial status because they have you know their economy is absolutely strangled by the United States economy and dependent upon it. And so what happens, I mean, so there is more of a point of tension and more, um, more movement around that is kind of bubbling to the surface. I mean, there's always movement, but, you know, in terms of the media and the, the flashpoints, it really is at a crisis point. And, you know, because Puerto Rico is, it has its colonial commonwealth status, it cannot um, even get bankruptcy like other states within the United States can claim bankruptcy. And bankruptcy is a tool for actually being able to wipe out a lot of debt. But because of the colonial relationship, they can't. So there's a lot of um, very difficult, it's at a very difficult point, and the economy is totally tanked. And um, so, yeah, there's a lot more that can be said. I don't know, Claude or Michael, do you want to add anything? Or, no, that's, anyway, but, you know, I will say thank you for that question, especially for people who don't know about Oscar. Um, go online. There are many ways to support him, and that, of course, was another, not that, um, Oscar himself is not in uh, a character in this book, but um, certainly I was hoping that through um, re raising again the issue of Puerto Rican independence in the context of this novel, um, it was another way of, of supporting and making more visible again the, the fight for freedom that has been ongoing in Puerto Rico for um, since well, for centuries, but um, certainly in terms of the United States relationship since 1898 when it became a, an official colony. I know there are some other questions brewing there. Some, no? Oh, Kriti! Go. Um. Like Luba is the character that you're closest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that true? Yes, yes. Um, and then have people that um, you based the other characters? Uh huh. Um, have they read the book or do they think about it? Do you know? Right. Um, okay. So here's the good. <laughs> that's thank you. Um, so uh, most of them are really an amalgam. I mean, Marilyn. Um, is no longer with us, unfortunately, so she has not read it. Um, people who have been close to Marilyn have read it, and um, so far, I mean, I, you know, I really actually anticipated more that people would, um, you know, everyone has their personal relationships with people, and they see them somewhat differently, so it's definitely hard when you put them 
when you try and represent them to not make someone upset. <laughs> you know, how could you say that she would really be that um, insensitive to this particular thing? But I, I was I was really trying to make this character a multifaceted person and get away from what is often the case with people who are very um, righteously revered in our movement, but the sense that they are, you know, icons who are um, uh, have no weaknesses or issues or whatever. So um, so the person who I really, um, so one of the people uh, the book is dedicated, the book is dedicated to my mother whose name is um, was Luba and even though she has no relationship to this character but this is my tribute to her in general um, and then to Marilyn um, and to Jaleel Montaquim, who is another um, political prisoner who has been in prison since um, 1971. A wonderful amount of time to be... Um, <laughs> uh, so he is one of the longest held um, political prisoners. And um, so one of the characters is starts with elements of him or the story has elements of him. Um, it's not, it really isn't exactly him, but it has pieces of it and because I've been close to Jaleel and my, um, my son has been close to him from a great coincidence of him being in a prison near where Tony was going to school and because he was then um, brought to uh, San Francisco as part of the San Francisco 8 case that happened in 2000 and starting in 2005. Um, he, he became the kind of basis for the pol political prisoner man who is um, talked about in the book. Um, so I did, um, even though I didn't actually say this character is based on you. I did send Jaleel the manuscript or the parts of the manuscript before the book was written and, and you know for him to read and give me feedback on and I wanted to make sure that you know he felt comfortable with um, uh, what was being written and so that you know, he, I mean, he didn't approach it as this is me and I'm, <laughs> so that was good. I mean, he, but he, you know, he told me it was all cool. So, um, but it's good that I did that then because then as soon as the book came out, um, of course I sent it to Jaleel and he's now in Attica. Um, and um, it came in the box. This book and um, his own book of poetry, which has recently been published, it's called Fade to Black, or Fade to Black, the Prison, anyone have the exact title? Anyway, Google Julio Montaquim, it's a, it's a new book of poetry of his. Anyway, so the book, the, he got a box, which is, uh, had been allowable, sending boxes of books, with my book, his own book, and a couple of other books and the prison wouldn't let it in. And they haven't so far. They have denied him and they have used it as a pretext now to deny all books. I mean, which is like incredible even by most prison standards. 
um, they've decided to get because they <laughs> they are um, saying that they are a TV prison and that the that the the prisoners voted on <laughs> on having TV access and that vote meant that they shouldn't have any books anymore. <laughs> I mean, this is a story that really should be out there more than it is because it's like incredible. Um, I mean, I think we're all just reeling. For, I mean, it, it's, people are still waiting for them to. I mean, he has, of course, grieved it. There has been a story in the San Francisco Bayview. He does have legal help working on it, but it's like, what? Yes. So, um, so he hasn't read the whole. <laughs> He hasn't been able to read the whole book, um, which is too bad, really too bad. And of course, and he hasn't been able to see his own book in print, which is, in many ways is the worst. I mean, that they denied him the ownership and the happiness of being able to be, you know, have his book. Um, so, I mean, you know, we're hoping a lot of things, and there's no exact campaign about it, but certainly if you, you know, go to his website, you can find, you could, could write a letter about that. But, um, so, that is the main, one of the other people who I, um, who is most recognizable. The other people, I mean, I, I, I had a, a series of people read it before it was published, some of them were vaguely connected, but um, the other people are really less recognizable and are too much amalgams, so I haven't had um, anyone kind of um, say anything to me, and I haven't given it to anyone else saying, oh, well, this is really you, you better read it. Because, in fact, I, it's not anyone else in particular for, for the rest of the people, so I, um, I don't feel like I'm... Um, you know, being unprincipled in that respect, but it's definitely something. With my memoir, I did much more of that, and then I guess I felt like, okay, I, <laughs> I don't have to go around and tell everyone. Well, I took what your the color of your eyes, and I put them in that character, and I took that one uh, anyway. So, um, Michael. Yeah, uh, I, I did read it. I was wondering if you said a little more about the last section, which is the speculative imaginary future as opposed to the imaginary history part. Uh, 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 not to give too much away, but one of the characters disappears right. in clandestine work in the future, somewhat like a, an anonymous type right, right. activity. And I'm wondering why you chose to do that, since I, I think that some of the people who do that probably have not actually disappeared. They're just they're anonymous. right. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So the thing about the future and the actions that are done in the future I, are really not meant to be prescriptive at all. I mean, and probably, yeah, it, it's not like I'm saying, oh, this is the best way anyone who um, wants to really get down should do stuff. I mean, really, and I don't think it comes across that way, I hope. Um, I mean, I was trying to... Uh, speculate, I mean really, on different pieces of um, what people don't think uh, could do again in the future. I feel like um, 
you know, for the first, I mean, many years when I came back from being underground, I mean, the era was such that it, it really was sort of like people could not wrap their minds around why people had gone, ever thought of being clandestine. I mean, just why would you ever do that? And I think now, I think there's at least more, people are looking more to history in this era, or at least I've seen that more. Um, and so are more interested in that. Um, and also, I guess, it's just... You know, I suppose you one ha always has their pet peeve. You know, the 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 trajectory of everything is so public now. Everything is it's like an or a cacophony of publicity all the time. Facebook is about you know making every. I mean, and I don't want to. You know, that's a too easy a horse to beat. But you know. I mean, Facebook is great, and there's many uses for it, but but it makes it so that people can, I mean, I, I know people say, I can't imagine not putting things up. I mean, it would just, you know, people are addicted, and, you know. So there's this whole thing about what it means to be, you know, public in that way, and trying to just suggest or introduce some reasons why... <laughs> why you might not want to do everything totally, um, you know, publicly. So, I mean, yes, I don't think that people who are in, in anonymous and do use technology actually are, pro are underground in the sense that we were. But I guess what I wanted to suggest, and neither do they use their technology for the most part, to further more radical goals, which I think would be great if more people thought that way and had those skills. Again, I'm not advocating for anyone to do that, but it's just about imagining things. I mean, and technology, you certainly do need to know something about technology in order to think about, you know, being more disruptive into the to the operation of the way things are. And so, you know, and also for the story, for the novel, it worked because it was, in the, it was a closing a circle, you know. People had gone underground in the past and then this young woman goes underground in the future. I, you know, that is the part I really, it's, it's not what I think anyone I have met is about ready to do or would I advise that they do it. So, but I thought it was, um, in terms of a novel, it kind of took it beyond the actual literal thing and I, you know, I felt like, um, and it also showed the possibilities which, I, or I hoped I tried to show possibilities for it, you know, that there are ways that it's, you know, of claiming technology or using technology, but in the end, the, the, the heart of any um, uh, insurgent action is the people who do, who actually deal with um, uh, claiming their their ground and when you get to that part you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> so. oh, okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I was just thinking like, this is more of a general question. Yeah. I was just wondering, I just want to get your opinion like, 
Do you think that like leftist movements today and like new movements today have like learned anything from your generation? No, like maybe not. <laughs> But I would love to hear your uh, Okay, question. so, all right. So always, and thank you for asking, what, I mean, this is a good space to talk about everything. And, you know, people, when you, they get up here or get to be a book reader, I've seen, done this, seen, been on the other side. I mean, am I an expert on that question or the answer? Not at all. I mean, so I'm just going to say I'll just give my opinion and anyone else who wants to jump in with an opinion on this um, question is great. Um, well, I do think that, I, I think there's a lot of things that have been learned or have been studied and tried to, um, people have tried to incorporate. I, I mean, I use, I think the issue of some of the ways in which our organizations in the past, in that era, um, drew incredibly harsh political demarcations. And, you know, you were either on this side or you were on another side. There was very little room for being in between. Um, the political line, as we called it, and, you know, was of the essence. And, um, um, and it really fed sectarianism and it fed, I think, exclusionary kinds of politics. And, you know, that was one of the things I wrote a lot about in my memoir, actually. Um, so I do think people have studied that and have seen that and, I ha and have really thought deliberately about that in different ways. Has that meant that there is no exclusionary or sectarian politics today? I mean, no. That I mean, I think people still struggle with the same issues, but I think they, um, you know, they have. There has been learning about that. I think people have studied some of the, you know, the. I mean, certainly levels of. Um, male-defined, macho relationships to militarism, I would say, have been studied and exposed and pointed at as really problematic. And I do think, I mean, that's another thing I, you know, write, wrote more about in my memoir. I definitely think they were. I mean, sometimes I think that people then say that anything that has to, I mean, you know, I am not... Um, I'm not a pacifist, I'll just say that. Um, I don't think that anything ha that has to do with using um, any kind of uh, force or whatever is, all, is just about male-defined or macho or whatever, which is sometimes uh, a very simplistic way of discounting um, a lot of history. So I think, um, but I think people have been able to deal with the nuances. I mean, the they is a very, also a very general, pr because there's so many different parts of the movement today and what y different uh, people are doing. Um, you know, I think that there's been, um, I, and I think there has, especially in the recent couple of years, the uh, capacity of um, groupings like Black Lives Matter and others to really, um, develop direct action in a way that is really, um, you know, startling and in your face and determined and is, is you know, really takes a lot of, uh, I think, learn some things from the past and then takes them further. Um, so I definitely think, I mean, it depends. I mean, some people 
I do think, I mean, when I know the historians among us here, I mean, uh, in general, it's always good to study history. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, do, I feel like the country as a whole, the, and this many people comment on, it's not, it's ahistorical, everyone, it, it seems like people feel like we all invented things in the moment, and it's all being reinvented now, and that is not... Uh, I mean, and if that's what you're speaking to, I think it's really important for people to study history and not just the history of this country. In fact, that's just a tiny, tiny little, <laughs> really the history of the whole, of the international um, situation, is of international struggle is really the most instructive from my point of view. But, um, so I hope that people do. I think a lot of people do. I think that, you know, unfortunately, some, I think there is m maybe more, you know, of a demarcation between the people who study this stuff in the academy and then the activists who, um, you know, act, uh, do implement or do, do uh, try and figure out how to bring struggle forward. So I think to, for, the all, for the number of you all who are really activist scholars, I, I think that is a really important thing. I don't think the only way to study history is by doing it in the academy. I really don't do that, think that. But it definitely is one way and there's a lot of supportive infrastructure for it being done in that context and it can be used in some amazing ways. So I, you know, so thank you for that question in terms of I think it's important, even though there's no one conclusion. I mean, I don't think there's any, you know, everyone's going to look at different pieces of history and come up with different, yeah. So, buy books. I will sign. Whoever wants me to sign, I'm happy to do it. Thank you so much for being such an engaged crowd. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.